Hello, and welcome to The Rundown, a weekly podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Eleanor Langford, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the week's biggest political stories with fellow Politics Home reporters and special guests from across Westminster. I'm here with our political editor, Adam Payne, and we're joined by two leading experts in what the public really think of what's going on in government right now. We have Chris Curtis, Head of Political Polling at Opinionum, and I'm also joined by political scientist Sir John Curtis, who is Professor of Politics at the University of Strathclyde and a Senior Research Fellow at the National Centre for Social Research. This week, the controversial ride national insurance came into effect, with the government saying that the 500 million raise will be used for a social care fund. Chris, what sort of reaction have you seen to this issue? Do the public view it as a, a fair deal, this national insurance rise? Normally, the answer to that question would be yes. Usually when you poll on raising national insurance and spending that money on the NHS, people are fairly supportive of it. And before this rise came in, that was also true. I think the difficulty is the fact that everything else is happening at the same time. So it's not just the fact that people are paying a little bit more on national insurance and that's going to the NHS. It's the fact that it's happening at the same time as their energy bills are going through the roof, prices are going up at the pump, inflation's having a massive effect. So it's the sort of compounding effect of all of those things. So the national insurance rise in theory might have been an all right way to raise money for the NHS. But in practice, I think it's, it's gone down incredibly badly. And what do you think of that, John? Are you also feeling that this, this compounding effect is making the national insurance rise seem worse than it is in the polls? Well, it's also, of course, because the politics of it are, in truth, somewhat unusual. To its credit, the Labour Party opposed this move from the beginning, even though it's never been quite clear that it had an alternative plan for raising the equivalent amount of money, certainly not over the longer term. So it has introduced us to a rather unusual politics whereby the Conservative Party has been having to defend a tax increase, which wasn't in its manifesto. And the Labour Party has been consistently opposing a tax increase for what we usually regard as its favourite subject, the National Health Service. And certainly, as Chris has already said, certainly the conjunction of events has been one that has meant that the Labour Party has perhaps chosen the right path, even though it seemed a rather peculiar choice back last autumn. So it's not just the fact that you know the rights happen when it is, but it's also that the opposition took a punt on opposing this, and that has proved to be politically, at least in the short term, uh, a otherwise and uh, clever move by them. John, just to come in on that, the Labour Party slogan heading into next month's local elections is on your side. The implication of that being, obviously, that the Conservative Party isn't on your side. Is that sentiment of the government acting in an unfair way starting to come through in the polling in recent weeks, do you think? Well, okay, let's unpack that slightly. I mean, I think, you know, that on your side thing is perhaps an extension to encompass the cost of living crisis of, you know, Labour's longstanding theme is one law for them and one law for the rest of us. And that obviously doesn't just refer to the cost of living crisis, the way in which the Labour Party would claim that the government is out of touch on the problems affecting people's lives, but also, of course, encompasses the Partygate scandal above all, and, and in general, as it were, the long-standing criticism of this government, which is that it's been rather more focused on outcomes than it has been uh, paying due regard to due process. The honest truth is, I think at the moment, what we are seeing is an opposition saying, we hear your pain, vote for us in order to express it. I'm not sure that either of them have actually come up with very much in the way 
of proposals that would actually, in practice, manage to provide much in the way of short-term relief. But of course, you know, the, the liberty of opposition is to enable people to uh, complain about the government. Now, actually, as far as the government's own standing is concerned, well, actually, even in the wake of both the spring statement and the latest revival of Partygate with the announcement of the 20 fines. The Conservatives are running at 35% still on average in the polls. That's what they were running at before the spring statement. It's a little higher than it was before the Ukraine crisis when it was running at 34. And it's certainly up on the 32% to which the party had fallen at the end of January when Partygate had been dominating the headlines. So far, it is, it's not obvious that either the spring statement or the particular row about the national insurance rise has that had any immediate short-term effect. But of course, the big long-term picture is that whereas before last November and before the government got into political trouble over its ethics and propriety, it was four points ahead in the polls. And now at least it is still at least four points behind in the polls. And that probably the big long term picture that we do for the first time have the opposition consistently in the lead, not by much, but it is in the lead. At least the half life of Partygate, as opposed to the immediate life, does seem to have been to create that situation. And the cost of living crisis is just simply not doing anything to help the government to get out of it. John, you mentioned party gear, and obviously it has re-emerged in the headlines in recent weeks. And the, the government line and the line which is put out there by Tory MPs as well, at least most of them, is that the general public is sick of hearing about this now when they want government to focus on what they see as more important, larger issues like the cost of living crisis and the appalling scenes we're seeing in Ukraine. Chris, you've been doing some polling in this area. What's your sense of where the public is at the moment on Partygate? Are they completely done with it as an issue? Or is perhaps more to it than meets the eye? I wouldn't say completely done with it, but it's certainly true that more people are now... So we've sort of ran this question, and I realise the two options aren't mutually exclusive necessarily, but it's a good way of capturing public sentiment. So we gave people two options. Firstly, basically, do you think this is a distraction from other more important issues? Or secondly, you know, do you think this is an important issue and we need to get to the bottom of what happened? Back in March, a lot more people would pick the important option than the distraction option, and now more people pick the distraction option than the, the important option. So I think that sort of narrative that there's other more important things going on has cut through with the public, and you know, that's at least what they're telling us pollsters. But I don't think that that means that this isn't damaging for the government, right? Just because people think that there's other more important things going on doesn't mean that the, it hasn't had a massive negative impact on the Prime Minister's approval rating. It doesn't mean that hardly anyone <laughs> trusts the Prime Minister anymore. It doesn't mean that, you know, there's a lot less faith in the government to sort of go about government business. And so this has had a negative impact. And I think that's going to start to bleed through to other issues as well. If the Prime Minister acted in this kind of way over Partygate, I think people are going to be less trusting on him and his government to handle the cost of living crisis and things like that. So I do think it has had a negative impact. I do think it's going to be a bit of a turning point for the government. And it's basically just going to make things a lot harder for them going forwards. And you, you talked about how perhaps Partygate isn't the most salient issue anymore, but how there's still significant reputational damage. How hard do you think it will be for the government to repair that reputational damage? In normal political circumstances, possibly not that hard. If Boris Johnson could go back to being the man who got things done, you know, that's what he's really good at, getting things done, getting Brexit done, getting vaccines done. 
then, you know, I'm sure he could turn these figures around. You know, if we were looking back to sort of the middle of the pandemic, November 2020, it was, his numbers crashed and burnt then because he didn't do this firebreak lockdown and then did the firebreak lockdown. It ruined his reputation. But he managed to build it up back up again by getting the vaccine rollout done. Now he's back with these really sort of bad polling figures again. And the question really is, what's he going to get done in order to repair his figures? And the truth is, it's really hard to see what he uses to get himself out of this mess, particularly in a circumstance where really what we're going to be talking about for the next year is people really struggling with their finances. Most of the data so far that we've we've seen from polling shows that most people think the government isn't doing enough. So sure, he could get himself out of this uh, situation. I just can't see what he's going to use in order to do it. John, just to bring you in there, can he return his popularity back to levels we saw earlier in his premiership? And if so, how do you think he can do it? Well, the first thing we have to say, Boris Johnson has never been a particularly popular prime minister. Apart from that period very early on in the uh, pandemic, he's been somebody where basically one half of the population, i.e., those who voted leave might indeed think he was doing rather a good job. But those who voted remain have never liked Boris Johnson and they've certainly never forgiven him for uh, delivering Brexit. So we, d- we shouldn't exaggerate his popularity. I mean, his popularity is important amongst leave voters. It's, it's what delivered him his majority. But he's never been somebody who's appealed to the public as a whole. Now, if I were to worry about the prime minister situation, I, w- I would point out two things. One is that once somebody gets a reputation for not telling the truth, it's difficult to recover. And certainly one of the things that was very, very clear in December and January is that even if people didn't necessarily thought he should resign, most people, including most Conservative voters, just did not think he was telling the truth. Phrases like work event became part of the lexicon of political jokes in much the same way as testing your eyesight in Barnard Castle still is two years on. So the problem, therefore, you have to worry about is that, therefore, will people necessarily believe the prime minister about anything else he says? The second reason I would worry is this, and this is the counterpoint to Ukraine is just so important that we can't possibly worry about the prime minister's ethics. One, of course, of the crucial narratives of the Ukraine crisis is that the West is arguing that Putin cannot be trusted because he is economical with the truth and he has broken international law. Now, if, and I stress if, in the end, the Metropolitan Police do decide that the Prime Minister has broken the law, and given that quite a lot of people don't think he's been telling the truth, actually, the Ukraine crisis potentially will put a higher premium on having a Prime Minister who's deemed to be ethical and acts with due probity than perhaps would otherwise be the case. Now, much depends, of course, on, on how the government is able to play this. But it's certainly interesting, although in the last week, the Conservatives' standing has not fallen in the polls, the moment Partygate came back in the polls, a number of polls, Redfield and Wilton, YouGov, Ipsos Mori, have found Boris Johnson's personal evaluations beginning to go down again. And we've seen this before, the the beginning of January, when Partygate had fallen out of the headlines because of Christmas, etc. Boris Johnson's personal evaluations began to prove Partygate hit the headlines and back they went down again. So, you know, I think much does depend on whether Boris Johnson is regarded by the police in the end as personally culpable. If he isn't, he'll probably escape. But if he is, 
then we shouldn't necessarily assume that actually government will find itself under pressure. At the end of the day, in truth, this is probably not simply going to be decided by public opinion. Boris Johnson's fate in the end will rest in the hands of Tory MPs and whether Tory MPs do or do not feel comfortable in being led by a prime minister who the Metropolitan Police will have determined have broken the law. We talked a lot there about Boris Johnson's reputational damage, but I kind of want to shift it a little onto the the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak's reputation. Obviously, he was incredibly popular during Eat Out to Help Out and the early stages of the pandemic with furlough. And that's been declining ever since. And then as we're recording today on Thursday, stories come out about his wife who has non-domicile status. And that's really played into a lot of that one rule for them narrative. I mean, it's still early days to know the public reaction to this story. But but Chris, how much damage could this kind of story do to Rishi's already quite damaged reputation? I think quite a lot, particularly this tax story, just because the optics of it are just so bad. There was this sort of argument I remember happening last year when every, you know, towards the end of last year, people basically concluded that Boris Johnson's premiership, probably slightly prematurely, decided that Boris Johnson's premiership was over and it was basically about the upcoming leadership contest. And what was interesting during that period is that there was sort of dirt being thrown at quite a lot of the contenders, most notably Liz Truss, a lot of criticism of her. But everyone else wasn't really throwing their dirt back at Rishi. And everyone was like, why is everyone not throwing dirt at Rishi? I'm sure there must be dirt around. And what's quite funny now is obviously what's happened is that's all been stored up for the absolute opportune moment, which is, you know, coming out of a spring statement, which landed incredibly badly, and the cost of living crisis, which has also gone pretty badly. And sort of now using this as the opportune moment to throw all of that dirt back. And what we've seen in the polls, even before this latest story, it's quite dramatic to see how far Rishi Sunak's approval ratings have fallen. He has gone from being the most popular politician in the country by quite some distance to now less popular than Keir Starmer in most of the polls this week. Not actually that much more popular than the Prime Minister even in some polls. I think this this tax story today, which you know we haven't seen any polling since that, we don't know what difference that's going to have. But I think that is going to have, have a difference just because of the optics of it. The idea that you're raising taxes at a time when arguably your wife is not paying as much as she otherwise would be, I think is going gonna, is gonna to look bad and I think that's going to upset a lot of people. In the wider context of Tory leadership, um, whenever a change in leadership may happen, has the Sunak ship sailed? Has the moment passed for the Chancellor? I don't know still. I mean, he was among Conservative Party members quite far ahead. And it's worth remembering the sort of slightly odd way that the Conservative Party select leaders, right? I mean, the first hurdle you have to jump is to get enough Conservative MPs to back you to end up on the final ballot paper. So it's really hard to calculate and work out how this has had an impact on that. If you look at the betting markets this morning... He's still favourite, but he was previously clear favourite. So Mm. the betting markets put it at about 40% chance that he was going to be next Conservative leader. That's fallen to, you know, about 15% chance that he's going to be next Conservative leader. So he's favourite, but only just and only because it's such a divided field. So, yeah, I mean, his chances are significantly less than they previously were. John, I don't know if you're a betting man, but would you be lobbing a few quid on Sunak, next Tory leader? I might have done a few weeks ago. I wouldn't do no, do so now. I mean, various points to make. One is, by the way, that it's been little noticed because the announcement only was made what, two or three days before the Ukraine crisis broke, is that actually Mr. Sunak is also in the frame for Partygate because he has received a questionnaire from the Metropolitan Police. And so therefore it is possible that he may be fined as well as the Prime Minister. And that, I think it's not been picked up very much. I mean, look, Rishi Sunak's great attribute 
is that he is a brilliant communicator. And I think that was always the foundation of his popularity that, you know, he wasn't just that he was dishing out lots of money, but that actually he seemed very self-assured, extremely good speaker, excellent communicator, and particularly in some ways, you know, seemed to be a counterpoint to a prime minister that certainly struggles with detail and sometimes his ability to come up with a dramatic turn of phrase uh, sometimes also is accompanied by a degree of uh, unfortunate phraseology. It's always been very clear that uh, Rishi Sunak is economically right of centre and that it was always going to be interesting how the public would react when his, what I call his true political colours became more visible. And that, of course, is what's been happening. It started to happen with the fact that the universal credit 20 credit up rating wasn't continued. And now, of course, we've seen that, you know, he is very definitely proven to be fiscal conservative. And that's one of the reasons why we ended up with the national insurance increase. The second thing is, I think there has also been just a bit of an indication occasionally that despite that apparent self-assurance, just how well does he do under pressure? And there have been one or two occasions in interviews when you've kind of seen him look left, look right in a somewhat, you know, hang on, what am I doing here? I need to get out of this fashion. We'll wait and see. I suspect that he and his wife regard this as all deeply, deeply unfair. And given that these days we're meant to believe in separate taxation of men and women, one can see where they're coming from. I suspect that perhaps in particular, for a conservative selectorate, if Boris Johnson were to go, would they be willing to accept a prime minister whose wife has chosen not to take an up British citizenship? And that in a sense, you know, we almost come back here to the infamous cricket test that Norman Tebbett came up with. In a sense, his problem will be that his wife seemingly has chosen to continue to back India, for personal reasons that may be perfectly understandable, and will particularly a conservative selectorate regard that acceptable in the wife of a potential British prime minister? So I think you know, beyond the, the optics of the taxation issue, I think there's a broader issue here about identity and symbolism that might cause in particular difficulty with, with Conservative Party members. Oh, so I mean, John's point's important, right? Like we've got multiple electorates that Rishi has to care about. It's not just voters. It's also the 140,000 incredibly right-wing members of the Conservative Party he has to convince of his credibility to be prime minister. But yeah, I mean, we're just not going to know how these arguments play out until until they do quite often. I think this is an example of one of those cases. Yeah. And obviously the leadership elections, that there isn't one at the moment, but the election that is happening is the, the local elections in just a couple of weeks' time. It's already been an incredibly tumultuous year for the government in general, Boris Johnson in particular, as we've touched upon. And the forthcoming May local elections are considered to be the big test of how satisfied the country is with the Conservative Party. The country will be going to the polls on the 5th of May. John, how do you think May is going to be playing out for Boris Johnson? And are there any particular areas where he's looking a bit shaky at the moment? Yes. The one place that he has to worry about is Scotland. In Scotland, all the seats are up for grabs, but not that virtually anything will, anybody will control because we have proportional representation up here for local elections. But the difficulty that the Conservatives face is they did very well 
when the last local elections were held, which in this instance was in 2017, six weeks before the 2017 general election, where the Conservatives did very well in Scotland, by their standards at least, and where indeed the Conservatives did well in the the local elections. It always was looking to be the case, given that backdrop, that the Conservatives would be on something of a hiding to nothing north of the border. But the truth is that the polling during the course of the last four or five months, again, partly a Partygate legacy, has been showing the Conservatives not only well down on their position five years ago, but actually also trading behind Labour. And there is a possibility that for the first time since 2016, that the Labour Party might come second, both in votes and in seats in the local elections, and that therefore the Conservatives' position hitherto as the undisputed principal voice of unionism north of the border, that that will be uh, under challenge. In England, frankly, the test that the Conservatives face isn't that tough. There are two reasons for this. One is to do with the baseline. The baseline in England is 2018. Now, at the time of the 2018 local elections, the Conservatives were a couple of points ahead in the polls. Estimate of the performance of the party's local elections was roughly even. Stevens being Conservative and Labour. So even though the Conservatives are at the moment around four points behind in the polls, yes, they would lose some ground, but they're not going to lose ground head over heels, particularly because of the second thing, which is that A, elections are primarily in Labour territory. I mean, not least in London, which of course is a whole council election. Yes, there is Wandsworth and there is Barnet, which which the Tories control, which are undoubtedly potentially vulnerable. And Wandsworth has become part of conservative iconography because of the way in which it's been conservative since 1978, often against the odds, and particularly Margaret Fletcher's defence of Wandsworth in Westminster in 1990, saved her premiership at least for a few months. But the truth is, beyond that, you know, Labour already run London. Outside of London, we are talking about, for the most part, one-third council elections in disproportionately Labour areas. So there aren't that many councils that are going to change hands to create headlines of, you know, Conservative moves X and Y. I I frankly can only find, you know, one or two where it looks possible that, you know, existing Tory control is going to be lost or something is going to come into into Labour's hands. So actually in England, it's a much easier wicket for the Tories to be on because they're not actually defending A, a a particularly good baseline and B, this is very much Labour territory already. And certainly, you know, the idea that um, Labour is going to be picking up lots of red wall councils, they're not there. The one that's there is Newcastle under Lyme and it's there for very unusual reasons. The Conservatives control Newcastle under Lyme after some independents defected a few months ago. And it so happens that in Newcastle under Lyme, it's a whole council election. But beyond that, I certainly don't see the kind of headlines Labour race back into Red Bull territory there. Either that Labour already still control the Red Bull councils or uh, there aren't enough seats up for grabs that Labour are likely to be able to change the position locally. Chris, with that in mind, what John's just said about how in England, at least, the scale of a bad night for Conservatives is quite limited. 
due to what's up for grabs. How do you see this playing out then in terms of sort of the next day reaction, the narrative which the parties are going to try and, and put across in, in the broadcast rounds and whatnot? Yeah, no, I, I, I do broadly agree with pretty much everything John said there, particularly about Scotland and also Scotland actually being the place that would be interesting to look at. This was going to be an incredibly difficult contest for the Scottish Conservatives to fight. You know, how do a group of people who said the Prime Minister should resign a few months ago turn around and go, actually, he shouldn't resign and also you should vote for us? It's going to be incredibly difficult for them to fight. I'd be even more confident than John was that Labour's going to end up in second place there and probably quite a comfortable second place. The polls have shown still both very far behind the SNP, but Labour's gap ahead of the Conservatives in Scotland greater than it has been for many years. But look, you know, there's sort of a separate question, which is not where should people look at or, or how people should interpret local election results, but how people will interpret local election results. And we're sitting here, we're recording this in the Shard. Most journalists are based, you know, within a couple of miles from here. And to be honest with you, most of them are going to care about and write about London because that's the place that they you know, know and are most aware of. The Conservatives are aware of this. So for you know, most times when you've got London local elections, they say, oh, look at what's happening in London. John talks about how um, that saved Thatcher's premiership in 1990. And I would I would sort of bet that the Conservatives are going to try and pull off the same trick again this year. They're going to point at Westminster and they're going to point at Wandsworth, knowing f a few facts. One, what happens in Wandsworth is completely different to what happens nationally. It's just got a completely different set of local politics that are to do with low tax. So, you know, the Conservatives could end up holding on to Wandsworth even if they were, you know, 10, 15 points behind nationally. And secondly, what's been happening overall is while there has been a bit of a swing against the Conservative Party nationally, the swing against the Conservative Party is a lot smaller in London uh, than it is going to be across the rest of the country. So I sort of broadly agree that there's going to be expectations that Labour is going to do incredibly well. But even if they're in a situation right now where they could quite comfortably go on to end up forming a government after the next election, these local election results are not going to look predicted particularly good for them. And yes, I think that could be the kind of thing that helps stabilise Boris Johnson's situation. Right, that's all we've got time for this week. But you can read more on all the biggest political stories at politicshome.com. And you can also subscribe to our newsletter by clicking on the link in the top right corner of our website. Thank you so much to our fantastic guests, Chris Curtis and Sir John Curtis, and to our political editor, Adam Payne. Our editor has been Laura Silver. You can follow them at adampayne26 and at laurasilver underscore, and I'm at Eleanor Mia. Thank you so much for listening, and please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to keep up to date. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, then please leave us a review. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can get us on Twitter at Politics Home or email us via news at politicshome.com. But for now, have a great weekend and be sure to listen again next week. I've been Eleanor Langford and this has been The Rundown. <laughs>